Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. This is uh, the last time we're going to be reading this text. We'll be moving on next week. Um, then I'll be on, and I'll be moving on to vacation. So uh, you all will um, hear some other people for a little while. So anyway, it's beginning in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect Harmony. May God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, help us to receive Your Word like the Thessalonians did, not as if it was the Word of mere men, but as the Word of God Himself. Help us to submit our minds, affections, and will to its authority. Help us to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ as He is revealed to us in the Gospel that we might turn from our idols to serve the living God through faith and in love. In the name of Christ, our Savior, through faith in His incarnation, obedience, death, and resurrection. Amen. How about if I was to give you a job description? And that job description included, for instance, part-time pot scrubber part-time cook, part-time administrator of conflict, judge, jury, and executioner, the binder of boo-boos, the one who says prayers before children go to sleep, the one who teaches his children from the scriptures, who instructs them in catechism who goes off 40 or more hours a week, works in a strange place, deals with conflict there and confusion so that there is food on a table and a roof over the head. The one who fixes the plumbing problems. And so much more. Kind of overwhelming when you think about it. All of the things a dad does. I know I'm a week early. But this is my chance. <laughs> all the things a dad does, it, it, when you've been listed, you think about all the things that you do as a father, it can become quite overwhelming, and yet they're all summed up in one word, fatherhood. I think that's pertinent precisely because, in a sense, that is what Paul is doing here. When we think about all the things that love does, it can quickly become overwhelming and we can get lost in all of the details and sometimes we just need to remember it's all wrapped up in one word and that word is love. The big idea this morning is that loved by God in Christ, we are able to love. The first part of this that I want us to understand is that love contains all virtue in itself. 
Paul has been talking about all of these different virtues, and then he says, above all of these, not quite in addition to, I mean, it has that idea of in addition to, but above all of these things, you are to also put on love. Paul repeats this command. It's, it's not kind of tied in with the first time he said put on. He, ex- he explicitly repeats it, put it on for emphasis. He wants us to grasp and understand that even, so to speak, if you don't get all of those things, get this one. Because this has a higher priority level. Seems strange in some sense, that he would put one thing above all of the others, and we'll sort of see why that is. Because this seems to be the most important thing. And as I've thought about love over the years, I keep coming back to this one definition that I have, and that definition is that love is a passionate, Okay, so it does involve emotions to a degree, but it is a passionate sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another person. See, it's not abstract. It's not just warm fuzzies. It's directed toward particular people, but what you're directing towards those people is you have a commitment to them, a commitment that includes sacrifice, but it's a, it's a sacrifice and a commitment that wants to see the well-being of that other person. Maybe perhaps the best being of another person. As fathers and as mothers, that's what we try to do with our kids. We're committed to them. We also have feeling for them. You know, I like my kids most of the time. Okay? Um, You know, there are those moments. But I'm committed to them and I sacrifice for them so that I may... Seek the best for them. That's how I understand love. And that's what I think Paul is saying, he's calling us to put on that kind of love. He says that this kind of love that we're supposed to put on above all else is something that that binds everything together. And the everything together is all of those things that he's already mentioned. Uh, The meekness, the humility the bearing with one another. It's almost like those things are are sticks that need to be carried. And the thing that you wrap around them so that you can carry them more easily is that cord called love. I, of course, grew up in the 70s. We saw the oil embargo, and my father's response to the oil embargo was, by golly, we're moving to natural gas and a wood-burning stove. And so... I was one of the people. One of my jobs was to bring in the wood. And you know what? It's a lot easier to bring in those that pieces of wood that don't fit perfectly together, you know. If you just stack them in the arms, it's nice to have something to wrap around them, to bind them together, to keep them straight together. And that is what love does with all of these virtues. It holds them together in a perfect sort of harmony. But love is not just the bond that goes around them that holds them in harmony. I like harmony, don't you? I mean, this week, well, there's nothing like a bad mix to ruin the sound of a band, you know? And so this week, I had one of the more delightful moments in recent memory when my daughter said to me, Daddy, can we listen to Deep Purple in the car? I thought, my work is reaching fruition. (laughs) 
I'm going to get to listen to my music in the car. Yes. And you know, this was a, this was a brand new CD that I had picked up. Uh, it's an old recording, old live thing. And so the mix is always different. And it was interesting to hear that in this particular concert, the drum and the bass got to be a little more prominent in the mix. And so I could hear the artistry there. But you know what? If you don't have a good mix, it all sounds bad. If there's too much drum and too much bass, you can't hear the guitars, the, thing, the keyboards that play the harmony and the melody, and you can't hear the singer. It's got to be right. And love is the thing that balances all of those things out so that there's not too much patience and not enough humility takes all of these things and brings them all together so that there is harmony with, among them. But not only that, love is the source of them all. It, in fact, it includes them all. And that's part of Paul's point in the reading we had this morning from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is these things. Love is patient. Love is kind. And so these, none of these things can be separated out and ferreted out of love, but they are included in love source of them all. So compassion, everything else. These things are aspects of love. When we love other people, we consider their interests in addition to our own. When we love other people, we, we weep with them when they're sad. When we love other people, we care about their sin and want to see them restored and renewed with Christ. All of these things happen because we love. The amazing thing about love, according to Paul Tripp in his new book, I read this section yesterday. I liked it. I loved it. Love loves to love. Love doesn't see love as a burden or a hassle. Love doesn't love begrudgingly. So there's where that, that aspect of sometimes we can be very sacrificial, but we do it begrudgingly, not willingly. You know, when, when the kids make noise for the fifth time at night, you know, and I have to go upstairs again, I'm not always going, you know, with joy in my heart. <laughs> I'm more filled with the love of myself, you know, than the love of my children. Okay? Love loves to love. I like that phrase. So if you, if you put on love, what Paul is essentially saying is that you will inevitably grow in all of these other virtues. It will all work itself out as it should. And yet, there's the reality that this thing called love is very hard for us. It's very difficult for us to do. And part of that comes from the fact, as uh, I mentioned last week, William Smith's book, Loving Well Even When You Haven't Been, is the reality that we have not all been loved well. Actually, none of us has been loved perfectly. Okay, We grew up with um, parents who were not perfect. Okay? Some were better than others. Okay? But all of them had flaws. All of them made mistakes. You young parents right now, yes, you're going to make mistakes even bigger ones than you've already made. My mom was the oldest of nine. She was the only girl. Life was a little different for her. 
okay? And, and you can see it in the sense of, she knows kind of, and it's, it, what it, t- it is to take care of the physical needs of other people. She understands that. But I think she wasn't nurtured very much because her parents didn't have time to nurture her. And so, you know, nurturing's tough for my mom. My dad never talks about his dad. And it was interesting because when I was in my 30s, I went to a family reunion and my parents were there and, and I, I talked to one of my father's cousins. They're like brothers. They grew up very close. So I said, tell me about my grandfather because he died when I was four. I, I didn't know this guy. It was like he was speaking of a hero. But what I, reading between the lines, I got to, to see that he was a hero if you were the nephew. But if you were the son, it must have been hard for my father because he, he was a perfectionist, demanding that of himself, and I'm sure he demanded that of my father. And so, you know, we, we place things. It's hard sometimes. We have not all been loved well. And so as a result, we cannot love well because we can only give that which we have received. And so we've been raised by sinners and we've been surrounded by sinners, including our siblings, you know, and we have not always been loved well. And there may be deficits, things that are difficult for us to do when it comes to love because we ourselves are also sinners. And we have this inward bent towards selfishness and indifference. And so while Paul says here that we are to put on love, it is very difficult for us in and of ourselves to put on love. And so love is not just one virtue of many, but it actually produces and holds them all together. But here's some good news for us. The Father loves us well in the Son. That is the solution to this problem of the fact that we have not always been loved well and therefore we struggle to love other people well. The solution to the problem is the gospel. And it's right there in verse 12 in part because Paul says that you are beloved. He doesn't unpack all of that here in this particular place, but we have to recognize that fact that we have, if we are in Christ, we have been loved by God the Father through God the Son. Tim Keller mentions um, what critics called a, a, a genre of film called the um, metaphorical second chance comedy. That sounds like a big title for a genre of films. But in this, what happens is that the the usual laws of the universe are temporarily suspended so that the main character, who often isn't a hero, um, often they're quite cadly, but uh, they get a second chance in life. You know, it's sort of like the uh, Christmas Carol story. You know, the, the person gets to see how life could have been. You know, a wonderful life is similar to this. One of my favorite in this genre, of course, is um, Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, precisely because Bill Murray goes through all of the different philosophies of life as he keeps waking up on the same day. Okay, and and you know what's what's waiting to happen? Love. That's what he finally has to learn before he can wake up on a new day. Love. But it's not up to us to kind of figure this out. Really, what it's up to is for God to love us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, don't worry, you're not going to keep waking up 
on the same day until you get this love thing right. But you'll wake up every day as God offers you the opportunity to be loved by him and to love others in his name. So you did get a second chance. It's just not quite metaphysical like that. Okay? He doesn't just give us a chance to figure out. He acts. He, in other words, God had a passionate, sacrificial commitment to our well-being that resulted in our salvation. That's what Paul, uh, John is talking about in, in 1 John 4. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, because the whole point was we didn't. We hated Him. As Paul says in Romans 3. But that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is precisely because that God is love that He loved us first by sending His Son to seek us and to reveal Himself to us. When we get to the Gospel of John in November, one of the things that we're going to see early on is this idea of the the Son took on flesh and blood, and in Greek it says, exegetes the Father. The Son explains the Father. The, The Son interprets the Father so that we might know who He is. And that is because the Father sent the Son to do that very thing. This is why in John 17 it says, this is eternal life, that you might know God and the One whom He has sent, Jesus Christ. He was sent that we might know Him, that we might have eternal life. But He sent Him not just to reveal that, but He also sent Him to be a propitiation for our sins. Big word. One of those 50-cent words us theologians and pastors toss around like they're, you know, whatever. Propitiation means to remove wrath. God hates sin precisely because it is an act of unlove. And so God has to do something with His wrath, with His anger towards sin. And so what He did is He poured it upon His Son so that we might be forgiven. And lest we start to think, as some people have said, that this is cosmic child abuse, let us remember that Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. He did it because He loved us. He willingly took the wrath of the Father. This is because of His his own passionate commitment of sacrificial uh, acts for the well-being of us. So the Father and the Son working in concert and in union, both motivated by love, not just for one another, but also for us helpless sinners, they moved that we might be saved from the wrath of God Himself. They work together for our good, for our well-being. 
And as I've, I said in the last month, as we've looked at all of these different virtues, I've said how we have received this thing from God as well, and therefore we now have the capacity to do this. All of this is summed up in that love. He loved us in compassion. He loved us in kindness. He loved us in the humility and the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And so we have these spiritual resources to be able to love others in kindness, in compassion, in humility, and gentleness. We have it. So even though you and I may not have been loved well by other people, I'm here to declare to you that the Father has loved you well. To declare to you that the Son of God has loved you well. And not only that, but as Jonathan Edwards notes, the Spirit of God is a spirit of love. And when the former enters the soul, love also enters with it. And so what Edwards is saying is, because God is love, when His Spirit dwells in the heart of a believer, He brings love with Him. That's part of what Romans 5 talks about, where the love of God is poured into our hearts. But not only does He bring with Him God's love for us, but He brings with Him the capacity for us to love one another. The indwelling Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to love one another. We can do this. Because we have received the God who is love. And in order for us to change, in a sense, we have to be captivated by that love. Drawn to it like a moth to the flame. Dwelling on it. Pondering it. Meditating over it. Melting our hardened hearts that we might know that we are loved and therefore able to love other people. So thirdly, being loved, we are now able to love. John connects the two. 1 John chapter 3, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And then he, but then he goes to what it means. What's the application? And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And so we see there that His love for us is meant to be in part an example for us of what love is. We too, like Christ, are to sacrifice ourselves for the well-being of our brothers and sisters. If they need clothing, we try to give them clothing. If they need food, we try to give them food. If they need encouragement, we try to give them encouragement, even though we perhaps would rather be somewhere else at that particular moment in time or working on another plumbing project, whatever. Okay. Not only that, but we see from, from the next chapter, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John, again, beats that drum. We have been loved. Now we love. We have been loved. Now we love. That's, that's, that's got to be the rhythm of our own hearts, so to speak. We have been loved. Now we can love. 
And so John also declares that his love for us is to be the motive and the basis of our love for one another. So it's not just an example, but it's also the motive and basis for it. Let's move away from John for a moment. Let's think of the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 5. There are a whole bunch of people arguing about circumcision there. And Paul declares in chapter 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul is declaring, just like John, that the unmistakable mark of saving faith is love for one another. Yeah, John said that. Jerry read that part too this morning. How can we say we love God when we don't love one another? For John, that was like impossible. This is exactly what Jesus says when he sums up the law in Matthew. He uses Leviticus 19 for part of that. The greatest commandment, he says, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, heart, mind, soul, and strength, Deuteronomy, and from Leviticus 19, to love your neighbor as yourself. He says the law and the prophets all hang upon these things. This is what they're really all about. And if you don't have that idea in mind, then all you're doing is following a bunch of rules. You've really missed the point. That the the law really is meant to to say, do you want to know what love to God looks like? It looks like this. If you want to know what love to man looks like, it looks like this. Paul in Romans 13 uses the moral law to do that very thing, to show us what love looks like. In a sense, the law is the trains of the track that love wants to go on. Paul says there, in verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so what we see here in in Romans 13, and when Jesus talks about this in Matthew, is that love is not opposed to the moral law. It is the summary and the fulfillment of the moral law. I hear so many people who try to pit love against law. Okay? Love against God's law. You can't do that. Biblically, you can't do it. Precisely because love is the summation of the law. If I want to know what it means to love a brother or to love my wife, Part of what it means to love my wife is to guard my heart so that I do not give my heart to another or my body to another. Marital fidelity is part of how I love my wife and my God. 
And it's also part of how I, I love my brothers because I don't take their wives as if she were mine. I don't take their property as if they're mine. I don't sneak in, you know, and say, man, Mike's got some nice books. I'm going to take Mike's books. They don't go strolling into Matt's house, you know, because Matt's got some nice techno stuff that I don't have and decide to just kind of pilfer it, which wouldn't work anyway because he's got all those cameras set up. So, you know, I can't get, I couldn't do anything in Matt's house, you know. But you understand, if I love people, what I'm doing is, is the law shows me what it means to love them and what it means to essentially hate them and to think I'm better than them. So the law and, and love are not opposed, but they're, they're joined together. Not only that, but we see that the, the law becomes also a motivation for resisting temptation. We're to utilize the law for its direction. In the book Jane Eyre, I have to admit right now, I've never read Jane Eyre. But I want to now. So some of you literary people might go, yeah, Steve's a convert. Um, There's this one section in the book where Jane has been tempted by Mr. Rochester. And Jane is single. Mr. Rochester is not. And the temptation that he provides is to come away with him, to be his mistress. And the book says this, or Jane says this, I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Strident are they, and violent they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? And so part of what Jane is saying here is that the, the law doesn't function when you're not in a sense uh, experience of temptation. Where the law really is meant to guard you is in the moments of temptation to reawaken you, to bring you back to sanity, precisely because sin is insanity. And in those moments when you're, you're tempted towards infidelity or towards theft or perhaps murder, what happens is the law speaks up to us at times and says, that is not love. And it also says to us, or should, that's why Christ had to die. Come back from the insanity. Return to love. Return to the side of Christ where you're meant to stand and walk. So, Love, this, this indispensable mark of a Christian, uh, is what preserves, in a sense, the unity of the body, which is the, the context in which Paul is writing this. Things that preserve the unity of the body. Let's think about this for a moment. I want to give you a specific application in light of our present circumstances or potential 
present circumstances. For those of you who don't know, we have been asked by a sister church if we would consider uh, the, the possibility of receiving them as members of this body. They want to, they're, they're thinking about whether or not they want to join together with us. Okay? The only way that could ever work is if we put on love. Because you know what? We have to make them feel welcome as a part of this. The best, the best picture I can imagine this of is it's like a blended family. You know, some of you have experienced those blended families. It's, it's, so it's going to be like two families kind of joining together, and usually when you have step-siblings, there's friction. There's a vying for place and prominence and power and all of that fun stuff. And love is the only thing that's going to keep us from trying to do that. Love is going to enable us to welcome them into our midst, to give them equality with us, not like, well, you know, we were here first, okay? And inviting them to participate with us in the worship of the church or however else God has gifted them. Love is the only thing. And so... Next week, what you don't know yet, unless you're in the session or Ken, <laughs> or my wife, is that they're going to be here. Or at least some of them will be here. Um, we, we met this past Thursday and we talked about things. And, and one of the things that we kind of talked about was, well, you know, maybe we should worship together, uh, you know, for a Sunday. And we we're th- talking about that and when it could take place. And I said, well, you know what? Uh, in in two two weeks, I'm going on vacation, so that pushes back a month. So it's going to have to be one of the next two Sundays if it's going to be like it normally is, because I'm normally here. <laughs> I'm normally preaching. So we decided next week. And so there will be far fewer empty seats next week. And so love means that sometimes you, you sit next to somebody, you know? <laughs> Sometimes we like our personal space, you know? And I understand that. I have lots of personal space up here, okay? But that might mean sitting close together. We only have so many chairs and so much space in this room. And sometimes it's just letting people know you're welcome to sit next to me. Help them feel like you'd want to feel if you were in their shoes. That whole thing of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you are in their position, how would you want to be treated if you came into a different church with the prospect of maybe joining them? So instead of waiting for them to say hi, you say hi. You stick out a hand. You give a welcome. You show them where things are. You help them out. Love. That's all it is. Love. But not just that one time, but if this happens, that's going to have to be what happens all the time. Loving one another well. 
because we have been loved well. That's part of why Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 4, above all, hey, that sounds familiar. Above all else, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Paul joins the chorus. I'm sorry, Peter joins the chorus with Paul and John. That love is really important. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we see this in verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. He's praying that love will fill the church. And so while we recognize this command to love, we also recognize our utter and complete dependence upon God to be able to fulfill that command. That's why Paul is praying that. They don't have it in themselves. They need it from God. And so a regular part of our prayer life, as um, we have a couple of quotes there, I think, talk about this. A regular part of our prayer life ought to be asking God to make us loving people. Because that's, that's part of our sanctification, of our transformation that we're more like Jesus, is that we be loving people. And so that's what we pray for, that He would make us loving people. And so, in conclusion, the Beatles were almost right when they sang, All You Need Is Love. They were close. We need to be loved by God, who then enables us to love one another. And it's this love that is the source of all of those virtues that build, that nurture, that protect the holy community called the church. Okay, that humility, patience, kindness, gentleness, all these things build and protect and nurture the church. This love also motivates us to avoid the sins that destroy the church, the, the tail-bearing, the exploitation and robbery and sexual immorality that, that destroy the fabric of any community. And so while a church is called to do many things, if it has not love, love for God and one another, it is nothing. Let's pray. Father, for Presbyterians, that is sobering because we like to be about our theology. But if we have theological precision but have not love, we have nothing. So I ask that we would have truth and love. And the source of both of those is you. And so we ask that the spirit of truth, who is also the spirit of love, who is also the spirit of holiness, would come and bring those things to us. That he would work applying the work of Jesus so that we might grow in all of these things. That we might grow in our understanding of truth as well as our practice of truth. That we might grow, Father, in our understanding of love and our practice of love. 
that we might grow in our understanding of holiness as well as our practice of holiness. We do not have it in ourselves, but wholly lean upon you. And so grant it to us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.